All right, hope you all had uh, enough handshaking and hugging. Sit back down, we'll get started. This is uh, a great morning, really, and what an exciting time when we have baptisms. That's always a blessing, and let me just encourage you, if you're here and you've surrendered your heart to the Lord Jesus and maybe haven't followed him yet in baptism, please feel free to um, contact us, write that on that connection card. Um, we'll help you with that, we really will. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Well, we are in the final week, four weeks, we have set aside to talk a little bit about this subject that's on the screen, the millennium, um, or it will be on the screen, there it is, it's on the screen now. And uh, it, we've been talking about it, and the millennium, um, we've defined it over the weeks, it's very simply the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the spiritual kingdom of God, made manifest physically on planet earth for 1,000 years. Literally, that's what that word means, millennium, mill, 1,000, annum, years. It's a 1,000-year kingdom of Jesus Christ on planet earth chronologically in the events of the scripture and of history uh, yet still to happen. This event occurs after the event that we know is the rapture of the church. We, the believers in Jesus Christ, will be taken away from this earth, enter into a seven-year period often called the tribulation, um, it's it's the, the 70th week of the famous prophecy from Daniel chapter 9. We studied that a couple of weeks ago. That period will then take place. That culminates with an event that we're all probably familiar with called the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ where he returns bodily to planet earth to judge the unbelieving and then to usher in to set up his kingdom for 1,000 years. And we've been talking about this for a few weeks now. So that's what this is. This millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, we have seen, it is not heaven. It is not eternity. It is just one more dispensation of time. And last week we talked a little bit about that. Literally, it's just the last period of time that God has set up to complete his work with man on earth. And you need to understand that without this period of the millennium, there would still yet be promises of God from the Old Testament that were yet unfulfilled. There would be prophecies of God from the Old Testament that would be still yet unfulfilled. And so God has this one last period of time, this 1,000-year kingdom that will be the final fulfillment of all the things that had yet to have been fulfilled towards man and specifically as well towards a nation, a specific nation, the nation of Israel and their role in that. We looked at that last week, and, and, uh, and that's an important thing. Now, when we talk about this, I, I don't know about you. I know that when I first began to hear about such things prophetically and in the future, uh, my immediate reaction was, okay, so why is that important to me? In other words, that's future. God's got that covered. Um, it's going to happen however it's going to happen. What difference does it really play in my life today, tomorrow, when I go back to work, or whatever the case might be? And if you're thinking that, uh, join the club. A lot of us think that. Uh, let me encourage you because, first off, it is important to us, maybe for no other reason, that God talks about it a lot. And if it's important to him, we probably ought to know about it. But maybe even more so than that, if we will understand the big picture, if we will understand the future and what awaits us and what awaits all of humanity, quite frankly, if we understand what comes next, what it does is, is it gives us a passion and a desire and an understanding and a motivation to live our lives today more appropriately in light of that big picture. And so there really is value in getting into this and understanding how God's great mercy, how his great love, how he has offered to us as a free gift this thing that we understand as biblical salvation and new life in Christ. It's such an amazing thing that it should motivate us 
to go and tell as many people as possible so that they can get in on it before it's too late. Amen? So today, the final message is uh, I've titled The Constitution of the Millennium, The Constitution of God's Millennial Kingdom. And if you have uh, your notes in front of you from our handout, you'll see that, that they are blank, okay? And uh, we're going to go a little old school today. You're going to have to actually take a Bible out and follow along. We're not throwing verses up on the screen. There's not going to be any cool graphics. Uh, if you didn't happen to bring a Bible, we do have Bibles in the pews. And so that can be a help to you. But think about this question as we enter into this discussion about the constitution of this government. Because the millennium is a kingdom. It's a theocracy. It's a government run by God by Jesus Christ, okay? And if God were to run a government, what would that be like? I mean, what would it be all about? What would God expect in a government that he runs? Well, that's what we're gonna see as we look in today's message. So uh, if you wanna open your Bibles, if you have one, if you need to use a Bible in the pew, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter five, chapter six, and chapter number seven, frequently referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are going to define for us, literally in a doctrinal application, the constitution of this kingdom that will be coming. We'll prove all that before the hour's over, okay? In a practical application, there's wonderful things in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that can apply to our lives absolutely right now, no question about it. But doctrinally speaking, that's what this thing defines for us. And if you're using a Bible in the pew, you'll find that about page 1,341. Maybe that'll help you out. Let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, God, we just simply desire for you to speak to our hearts. Lord, we need your eyes to see this big picture. We need to have the faith to understand that what you tell us is absolutely the truth about the future. It's not what you hope for it to be. It's exactly what it will be, and we can understand that. And I pray, Lord, that as we see this big picture, as we understand this roadmap that's out in our future, historically anyway, that it works in our hearts kind of like a GPS. It, it helps us simply to guide us and our steps right now to make sure we're pointed in the right direction, to make sure that we're doing exactly what you want us to do in our lives now to glorify you and to prepare all the others that would respond to be a part of this great kingdom that you're going to set up. And so, Lord, as we come before your word, it's a deep subject. There's a lot that you have to say about it. We desire to understand it in a relatively short amount of time. So please, Holy Spirit, come and be our teacher. Just fill us and lead us and help us to see you through these pages. We pray in your name. Amen. Okay, so if you are taking notes and you're interested in writing down an outline, some people are, most of you probably not. Uh, I mean, who does that? You're not in school, right? It's Sunday. But the people who enjoy taking notes or whatever, my first point is simply this, the theme of the Bible, the theme of the Bible, okay? Uh, you can look up at the screen, but it's just never going to change. It's going to look just like that. <laughs> and, and, you know, the short answer, um, the, the spoiler alert, the theme of the Bible is a kingdom. And, and many of you have heard that many times before. Sometimes it's referred to in different ways. I mean, what is the ultimate theme of the entire body of the scriptures that God gives us? Well, it's a kingdom. Uh, some might say it's a king. Uh, I, I like to phrase it this way sometimes. It's all about authority. In other words, the king runs the kingdom. The king is in charge. The big question in the Bible is, who's in charge? Is it God? Is it the devil? Is it you? I mean, who's in charge, really? And that's really the underlying theme of everything that is going on as you start from Genesis and go all the way to the book of Revelation. And, and quite 
simply, what I want to do for you in this first section is just kind of lay out for you the proof. And this is going to serve as the groundwork to better understand why we're landing with the conclusion about Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that we land. So just kind of hang with me for a second. If you will recall in your mind, Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, right? And so we understand that God is the only thing that's been eternal. Everything that is, it is because he initiated it. He created it. He is the source of everything that exists. And of the multitude of places that I could have gone, I just want to remind you of one verse, for example, in Psalm 103, 19. It says this, The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. His kingdom ruleth over all. Because that is the theme, that is the issue. God Almighty is the one who rules over everything that is and everything that is ever going to be. If you want to keep your finger in Matthew 5 and flip forward a little bit in the New Testament to Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, very interesting series of verses starting in verse 14. 14, 15, 16, and 17. And in Colossians chapter 1, as the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is giving us this revelation, I want you to see something. Colossians 1.14 says this, In whom, talking about Christ, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created, notice that, that are in heaven, that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now, interestingly enough, the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to put this thing down when he writes the letter to the Colossians, and he says, God who created all things. And when he begins to list what the all things are, he doesn't say the animals and the trees and the mountains and the waters and the people and the birds and the fish. He doesn't list any of that stuff. Thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. Because in God's view of everything that is, it all boils down to this theme that is his story. It's about a kingdom. It's about authority. It's about who's in charge. That's how he sees everything. God has all authority, amen. We understand that. But the devil wants it. (laughs) The devil wants it, does he not? Uh, If you want to look in your Bibles, again, keep your finger there. Uh, You got one hand in Matthew, one hand in Colossians, but the third hand, we're going to Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel chapter 28, and and you can just listen if you want to, okay? And this is a story that is going to make sense here. We're going to read through, starting in verse number 12 through verse number 16. Ezekiel 28, 12. The Lord's speaking to Ezekiel and he says, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, now stop there for a second. The king of Tyrus, in the context of this passage, as you'll see in a minute, he, Ezekiel is not to go talk to a man who has the role of the king of this place called Tyrus. Literally, this passage is talking to the spiritual powers that are behind this man who has the position as the king of Tyrus. Nevertheless, he is a king, and it is an authority issue. But there's an even greater spiritual authority that is moving this person who is the king of Tyrus. And so God says, basically, speak to the king of Tyrus. You'll see how that plays out. Just hang on. Thus saith the Lord God, thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom, 
perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. The king of Tyrus has never been in Eden, the garden of God, but Satan had been in Eden, right? That's who he's talking to. Every precious, precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold, and workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Notice verse 14. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. He's not talking to just a man. He's talking to a spirit that's behind this man. And I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. That's heavenly Jerusalem. This is not written just to a man. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God, and thou wast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they filled the midst of thee with violence. Thou hast sinned, therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire." And although it is somewhat of a veiled reference referring to the king of Tyrus, this is most certainly referring to Lucifer. It is referring to that anointed cherub that was in the throne of God, that was in his his court, and, and he fell. And when he fell, that fall became very evident, and it was described for us in Isaiah chapter 14. Again, if you happen to be using a pew Bible, that'll be page 999. Isaiah chapter 14, starting in verse number 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend unto heaven. What is his sin? He said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. Notice, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. So the devil is in the very mountain of God. The devil is in the very presence of the third heaven in the throne room of God, and he is filled with pride and desire for authority. His kingdom, his throne, his sin is, hey, God's got a good deal going. He's running this show. I want to run this show. And he seeks to set his throne above the throne of God and God judges him and he casts him out and when he casts him out and we don't have time to prove this today literally he casts him down and he is given this territory that we ultimately know as Eden he was in the garden of Eden and interestingly enough so the devil is cast down and 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 exactly when that happened we're not we're not 100% sure but it happened before man ultimately showed up because when man shows up in the garden then we see the serpent show up and he's already the devil He's already evil. He's already made his choice prior to that time. And so God makes man. He does the six-day creation. On the sixth day, he creates man, and he makes him in his image. And when he makes man in his image, he gives to man, what does he give him? Dominion. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creepeth upon all the earth. So literally, Adam was placed in Eden. And Adam was given authority, kingdom rule. He was given dominion to rule over the entire planet. God set him up. That's the theme from the very beginning running all the way through. 
And so the devil doesn't like that at all. The devil is upset that he didn't get that. And so he's always wanted kingdom authority. He's always wanted to be in charge. And so what does the devil do? He shows up in the form of a serpent. He deceives Eve and then Adam. They sin and they fall and they lose some of that favor that they had with God because now sin has ruined that relationship. It's a constant struggle for authority. God, the devil, I, myself, who's going to be in charge? As you read through the entire Old Testament, then most of the bulk of the Old Testament story is the story of God ultimately setting up one nation, the nation of Israel, to rule over the other nations. And most of the Old Testament narrative is while they are striving to do that under God's direction, sin gets in the way. But the Old Testament stories, if you've just read the Bible, you understand that the Old Testament stories, those are stories of nations and peoples and wars, and territories, and bloodshed, and spoils, because people are struggling and fighting to conquer other nations, because the theme of the Bible is all about a kingdom, and that's a really important thing. Ultimately, this story comes through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Jacob's name literally is changed to Israel, And his 12 sons then become these 12 tribes and their descendants then have certain inheritances. At the end of the book of Genesis, and I'm just giving this to you obviously as just a quick review, as it divides up the inheritances for each of the sons and therefore their tribes, it says in Genesis chapter 49, just listen to this in verse number 10, when it gets to the tribe of Judah, it says the scepter, the, the king's scepter, shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh, capital S, ultimately referring to the Lord Jesus, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. What you don't find, if you were, it's hard for us to read the Old Testament without a New Testament bias. But if you were to somehow just have an Old Testament without a New Testament, what you would not find in the Old Testament is you would not find Jesus Christ referred to directly. Now, there's pictures and types. I understand that. Uh, You would not find the cross. You would not find people being born again. You would not find anything that would reference by grace through faith and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, You would not find eternal security. I mean, there's things in the Old Testament that you're just not going to find. But what you would find is that this nation of Israel, the people of God, did truly anticipate that there would be a day when God would send his Messiah, Shiloh, the Deliverer. And he would establish this kingdom with Israel as the head of all the other nations. It would be God's kingdom on earth. That's what they expected. I do all that background study just to set up this thing. Because by the time Jesus Christ shows up a couple thousand years ago, physically as a baby, okay, we're almost in the Christmas season. By the time Jesus Christ shows up, the stage is set. And everything is ready for him to then usher in this kingdom. And whether it's John the Baptist or whether it's Jesus himself, and they are preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, 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 it's at the door. It's very close. And another place that says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we've studied how the kingdom of God is that spiritual aspect 
of the kingdom and the kingdom of heaven is the physical aspect of that kingdom. The millennium are when the two come together as one, the spiritual becomes physical and, and they land on planet earth. But when Jesus Christ shows up that very first time, everything was ready to have it happen right at that time. You've got to understand that. And so we flip the page from the Old Testament, Malachi, and we come into the New Testament, Matthew. And maybe you're aware of this and maybe not. There's four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of the four accounts depict Jesus Christ in a different way, in a way very unique and specific to the storyline that they're trying to communicate. Matthew's version of the gospel is very Jewish. And Matthew depicts the Lord Jesus Christ as the coming king to set up his kingdom. He is the king of the Jews. That is the specific emphasis that God gives Matthew to give to us. So if you have your Bibles, if you haven't flipped with me to the other ones, that's fine. Look in Matthew. Go back to Matthew. And in chapter number one, as we're just going to get a running start up to chapter number five, in chapter number one of Matthew, what we have is that genealogy. Who begat who and who begat who and all that fun reading. What you have in there is the royal lineage that comes through Abraham and most specifically through the tribe of Judah and through King David that ultimately leads to the birth of Jesus Christ, showing that he is born into the royal line and the heir, therefore, of this throne. In Matthew chapter 2, you have the account of literally Jesus Christ's birth. When Jesus Christ is born, there's a king, okay, and his name is Herod. And Herod is threatened by the story that there is a boy that is born, and it says, where is he who was born to be the king of the Jews in Matthew 2? And so Herod, the king, is threatened by this new coming king, heir to the throne. And so he persecutes them and tries to kill Jesus. Of course, he flees to Egypt and he's spared. Matthew chapter 3, what you have is Jesus is ultimately baptized by John in the River Jordan. And Jesus Christ receives public confirmation from heaven. The voice of God the Father as he's baptized, he comes up out of the water, we see the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and the voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And so just like any king that would have a herald, that would herald the coming of the king, Jesus Christ's first public presentation to the masses He is heralded by John the Baptist on an earthly perspective, but from a heavenly perspective, he is heralded by God the Father. This is Shiloh. This is the Messiah, the Deliverer. That's Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 4, immediately, he's driven into the wilderness for a temptation. And as he goes through the various temptations in Matthew chapter 4, where the devil literally comes to tempt him, it says in Matthew chapter 4, Look in verse number eight. The devil taketh him upon an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, all these things will I give thee. See what he's fighting for? He wants the kingdom. He wants the authority. I'll give you all this authority, Jesus, if you'll just fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. If you went down to say verse number 17, it says from that time Jesus began to preach and to say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, Matthew's gospel is the only gospel that refers specifically to that term, the kingdom of heaven. And here we have it because it is is about to be presented. It's at hand. It's even at the door. It's very, very close. 
The characteristics of the kingdom that we studied last week, we see in verse number 23, for example, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Last week we saw how human life is characterized by long life and great health. And lastly, as we look in verse number 25, it says there followed him great multitudes of people. And that's what will happen when the kingdom is set up. And so as we come to Matthew chapter 5, what do we have? Literally, the stage is set. Literally, everything is ready. And we understand that the theme of the entire Bible is this kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. And so what we literally have here is the king comes, and he sits down, in this position of authority. And he has his disciples gathered around him. And he begins to proclaim to them what will be now the governing, ruling principles of this kingdom that is at hand. He sits down and he gives his royal decree. That's literally what we're seeing as we get into Matthew chapter number 5. And so that's the theme of the Bible. It's a kingdom. But what is this constitution all about? So again, if you're keeping the main points on these notes, number two, the theme of the Constitution. The first was the theme of the Bible, and it was the kingdom. Number two is the theme of the Constitution. And the theme of the Constitution, as we will quickly review Matthew 5 and 6, is righteousness. It's all about righteousness. That's what this kingdom is all about. It starts out in the first 12 verses with the things that we refer to as the Beatitudes. Okay, if you, if you don't read it exactly right, you might say beatitudes. No, it's beatitudes. And the idea is, very interestingly, literally the word beatitude just means supreme blessedness. Or it means to make happy. Okay, blessed are these. And it gives some characteristics. Literally, you'll be happy if you live this way. That's good news. Interestingly, and, and it's an easy way to remember it, beatitudes okay, it, it, it has the word attitude. It deals with your attitude. And the things that we see described in the Beatitudes are things that uh, deal with our attitude, right? The poor in spirit, those that mourn, those that are meek, those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, those that are merciful, those that are pure in heart, those that are peacemakers. That's the kind of attitude that will make you have a happy life. In this kingdom, the very first beatitude we see is in verse number three. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Notice the theme, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then you go through the rest of the list. So the first one deals with the kingdom of heaven. Interestingly, the last one deals with the kingdom of heaven. Verse number 10, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so it's all about this kingdom. It's all about your attitude. You have to have the right attitude to live in this kingdom. But it's not just about attitudes because a lot of people have maybe a good attitude, but they just sit around on their blessed assurance and they don't really do anything. And so God says, well, it's more than just attitudes. You've got to have actions. And so there's some actions that are just prescribed. And again, we're not studying all of these. You'll have to read these for yourselves, okay? But the remainder of Matthew chapter 5 then deals with how Jesus Christ sets a standard for living. And he raises the bar above that of the Old Testament law. And this is that dialogue where Jesus goes into this thing and he says, hey, you've heard that it was said such and such. 
But now I say unto you, and he kind of raises the bar and he changes it to make it much more personal and much more strict in a sense. He says in verse 21, for example, uh, that you should not kill. You've understood all along that you shouldn't kill anybody. But he goes on then in verse number 22 and he says, yeah, but even if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you've already committed murder in your heart. So you see, he takes not just the action of some outward behavior, but he goes to the heart attitude with the behavior, okay? So it's not just don't kill somebody, don't wish they were dead. He goes on in verse 27 and it says, you've heard that it was said that you shouldn't commit adultery. But I'm going to say unto you that if any man even looks upon a woman to lust after her in his heart, that he's already committed adultery with her as far as God's concerned. And so the standard is much higher. It's not just that you haven't gone and done some evil deed, but you have been thinking about it. You have been desiring that evil thing to happen, even though somehow you controlled your body from participating in it. In verse 31, it says, in the Old Testament, you were allowed to have a writing of divorcement and put your wife away. And he says, look, I don't want you to do that except for one condition, and that's fornication. And so he raises the standard. He raises the standard. In verse 33, he says that you've heard it said that you shall not forswear yourself. In other words, swear or take an oath. I promise that I'm telling the truth this time, like in a court of law. But he says, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. In other words, let your word be your bond. Whatever you say, make it true all the time anyway, and you don't have to worry about ever raising your right hand and swearing or whatever. You don't have to do any of that because you just always tell the truth. That's the kind of life that is a kingdom life. You've heard about this system for revenge, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was described in the law. But he says, you know what? Now, don't resist evil. If a man smites you on the cheek, turn to him the other one. Just be humble. You've heard that it was said you should love your friends and you should hate your enemies. That makes sense. We do that naturally. We love to love our friends and we love to hate our enemies. He says, no, love your enemies. Bless them. I don't mean bless them like in Georgia. We bless them out. That's different. Pray for them. Help them. Provide for them. And so there's this element of, yes, do the right things, but raise the bar on your attitude while you're doing the right things. Matthew 5 is all about righteousness. And Matthew 6 as well, because in Matthew 6 then he presents a whole new way of looking at it where really the the theme of Matthew 6 is uh, without hypocrisy. Don't be a hypocrite. And so in the first four verses of Matthew 6, he talks about the element of giving. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, giving gifts of charity to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory of men. Verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. And so in verses one through four, he deals with the issue of giving. And if you give with the motivation to be seen of men. That's what the hypocrites do. And you'll have no reward from God because you've already got your reward, all the notoriety. Roll the cameras. I want everybody to see how generous I am. Don't do that. 
It goes to the next series of verses in verses 5 through 15, and it's all about prayer. And he starts off by talking about how when you pray, don't stand in the middle of the street and raise your voice for everybody to realize how pious you are and how spiritual you are. To be, and again, the phrase, to be seen of men as the hypocrites do, don't do that. And he enters into the whole discourse of what we sometimes refer to as the Lord's Prayer or some people call it the Disciples' Prayer as they say, teach us to pray, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, etc., etc. And all the elements of proper prayer life, all I want to emphasize to you is, is that our lives in this kingdom are to be governed by righteousness, non-hypocritical righteousness with the right attitude. Verses 16, 17, and 18, kind of another facet of the issue of prayer, it talks about fasting. And in fasting, similarly, don't, don't get out as many countries of the world today and many Muslim countries where they have a whole month of fasting and they sit on the streets and, and they look all drawn and hungry and all wore out and they want to just be praised of men for their great dedication in their fasting. And then as soon as the sun goes down, they get to go home and gorge out and just eat all they can stand. But Jesus says, don't, don't do that. If you're going to fast, wash your face, look fine, don't whine about it, don't tell everybody. Do it in secret between you and the Lord. And, and if you do that privately as, your, as a result of your relationship with him, he'll reward you. He'll reward you. You don't need to be seen of men. That's what hypocrites do. So what is kingdom righteousness all about? This constitution is all about righteousness. Kingdom righteousness is doing what's right with the right attitude. That's what it is. Doing the right things with the right attitudes. By the way, can we not live a kingdom life today? We sure can. You can do, listen, the whole government structure isn't set up that way right now. But we in our lives, in our physical lives, with the spirit of God and his kingdom in our hearts, we have the ability to live right and to do it with the right attitude, not as the hypocrites do. You see, the error that we do, the, the, the thing that man in his flesh does, is you take one extreme and to the exclusion of the other. And so if you just have the desire to do what's right, but you never get around to actually doing it, that's not enough. If you are the kind of person who does legalistically all this list of things, but in your heart you're not really connected, that's not right either. And if you look with me in verse number 16, it specifically says that. It says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So having only a desire is useless. It's what James calls a dead faith with no works. It's fake. It's selfish. But if you have only deeds and no desire then it's cold, it's legalistic, it's judgmental. It's also selfish. Verse number 20, this is back in chapter 5 actually, it says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were the ones that were known for keeping every jot and tittle of the law, but inwardly they were as dead men, they were like whitewashed sepulchers. They looked good on the outside, but inside full of dead man's bones. There was no heart, although they did the details of the law. So just think about it this way. In Christ's kingdom, every citizen has a personal relationship with the king. 
Every citizen literally has a personal relationship with the king and they are expected to do the right things and with the right attitude. Why? Because we love God. We love the king. We love where we live. We're loving life. And you want to do the right thing. But oddly, not everybody takes advantage of that in this kingdom. There are those who reject it. And it just blows my mind to think of that. So our our third point that we're going to look at today, if you're taking notes, is the theme of salvation. So we've seen the theme of the Bible and the theme of the Constitution. And now we're going to talk about the theme of salvation. And, And really the theme of salvation in this kingdom time is obedience. It's obedience. And we're going to see that in Matthew chapter 7. Remember, the millennium is not heaven. The millennium is just the next dispensation. It's not eternity. There is a fixed end point. It's a thousand years out. There will be salvation in the millennium because there will be sin in the millennium. Really? I thought all the sinners were judged when Jesus comes the second time and only the guys that made it make it through. Yes, that's true, but it's a thousand years, remember? And remember among the different things of the curse that was lifted from the earth and the desert will blossom as the rose and and the wolf shall lay down with the lamb and we saw about the good health and, and all the things that we'll enjoy with long life and also we saw how God will increase human reproduction and childbearing. There'll be no more sterility, And so children will be born into this kingdom. And those children who were born into this kingdom during that time frame, I mean, a lot of babies born in a thousand years. They got to make their choice too. Just like those, their parents who made it through the tribulation, they would have already made their choice. But their children have to make their choice. And the nature of man still exists. It's a sinful nature. I'm going to give you some references here. There is sin in the millennium. If you have this constitutional mindset of Matthew 5 and 6 in front of you and you just read about how God describes how he wants his children to behave. When this happens, do that. When this happens, do that. When this happens, do that. The things that he describes happening are sinful things. Therefore, there is an answer for that. How should you respond when people treat you this way? That means that you can expect during this time frame there will be people who will treat you that way, okay? And so, according to, as we're just walking through, if you go back to Matthew chapter 5 and you look in verse number 19, basically you'll find that there will be people breaking the law. There's people breaking the law. That's sin. If you look in Matthew 5 and verse 22, you find that people are getting mad and they're calling each other names. Uh, If you go down to Matthew Uh, 525, you find that people are delivered to the judges and the officers and ultimately cast in prison. Why would there need to be prison if there wasn't any sin and misbehavior? Uh, Matthew 528, it deals with that issue of sexual lust. In Matthew 532, it talks about that issue of divorce and remarriage. Go down to verse number 39, it talks about anybody smites you on the cheek. There's fistfights. How about that? In the millennium, fistfights. Uh, in verse number 40 of chapter 5, they're gonna, people are going to take you to court and sue you. So there's lawsuits. Uh, verse number 44, cursing, hating, using other people. Verses 46 and 47, tax collecting. That's a sin. <laughs> Amen. Chapter 6, we already talked about hypocrisy. Chapter number 7, if you want to look in verse number 3, 
self-justification, people who justify themselves before others. You can go down further in Matthew 7 where it talks about false prophets in verse 15. And so basically they're liars. They're liars. So there's sin in the millennium. And since there's sin in the millennium, there's a need for justification. So there has to be salvation. So what does salvation look like in this time period? Well, Matthew chapter 7 starts off with verse number 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Not everybody. People love that verse, man. People love judge not lest you be judged. People, let me say it this way. People who sin love that verse, right? I mean, if your life is in sin, you want other people around you to apply that verse because you don't want them getting up in your grill and telling you what you're doing wrong, right? Nevertheless, Jesus says very clearly, judge not lest you be judged. And he goes on to describe what that's all about and how with the manner, you know, if you've got a speck in your eye and the other guy's got a beam in his eye and, or you've got the beam and he has a speck. And, and, and in other words, you're guilty too. In the kingdom, okay, unlike the time in which we live now, there is righteous rule from a throne of purity and holiness. And there will be one who judges and he will judge rightly and by the way, he will judge swiftly. By the way, the church, which is his body, those of us who have received him, we will be ruling and reigning in his government together with him. We saw that the first week of the series. Our job together with Christ will be to bring sinners to quick and swift consequence of their sin. There will be judgment, okay? But it doesn't belong to the regular citizens. There's no need for them to have to do that. But rather, you go down in verse number 7, for example, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. And so this whole idea is that rather than judgmentally pointing at everybody else in this time, just humble yourself. Ask, seek, knock, and it will come to you. It will be revealed to you. If you look down to verse 13 and 14, Enter ye in at the straight or narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be, notice, that find it. If people have to find it, they have to be looking for it. If you were to go to Luke's version of this same discourse, Luke would say, strive to enter in at the straight gate. Ask, seek, knock. And literally, the characteristic that Jesus Christ is looking for as we come into this kingdom time, look in verse number 12. Verse number 12 of Matthew 7 is what we commonly refer to as the golden rule, right? Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. When that phrase, this is the law and the prophets, that, that means that this is all-encompassing of all of my revelation. The Old Testament revelation can be considered into a couple of categories, the law and the prophets. And when he says, this is the law and the prophets, in other words, he's saying, all of my revelation can be summed up in this. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We call it the golden rule. That's the life Christ expects for you to live. If you really live your life that way, in obedience to his word, in love for the other, caring enough about them to behave in a way toward them 
that is something that you would be pleased that they would behave towards you will be a determinate factor in whether or not they gain eternal life. Now, we would like to live by the golden rule because it's a wonderful thing to do. But if you blow it and don't behave that way to others, that, not, that is not the determinant factor of whether you go to heaven or not. For us, it's different. It's a different dispensation. It's a different time. Maybe you're not convinced. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 20, we read that before where it says, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, it's not just about what you do. You have to do the right thing with the right attitude because the Pharisees and scribes had right deeds but they were wicked inside. Matthew 5, 48, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And the idea is, is not that you never ever blow it, but the idea is that you constantly and forever do the right thing. So if you blow it, you get it right. You immediately get it right. You do the right things, you have the right attitude. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, very well known and for good reason. We talked about ask, seek, knock. What are we seeking? Matthew 6, 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the theme. That's the theme of salvation. And all these things, these physical things shall be added unto you. So he's like, seek after what is right with all your heart and behave that way. Now look in Matthew 7, verse 21. I use Matthew 7.21 all the time when I'm sharing the gospel. It's not an error to do that. But understanding the context of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is literally the constitutional document that governs life in this millennial kingdom as he is presenting this to his disciples. Matthew 7.21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. How is it that you respond properly in the kingdom? What is it that God is going to be looking for in the kingdom? That you do something. You have to do the will of the Father. And literally, in the time of this kingdom, you need to understand, there is nobody getting on their knees and praying to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins because of the shed blood of, on, on Calvary. There's not anybody who has to believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, the Bible makes it very clear. There is no faith necessary whatsoever because faith, by definition, is the opposite of sight. We walk by faith, not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5. Hebrews chapter 11, right? Faith is the substance things hope for, the evidence of things not seen. If you can see it, you don't need faith. I know we have the expression, seeing is believing, but that's not true. Seeing is seeing, Believing is acting on God's word when you can't see. That's faith. That's how we get saved. We believe in the testimony of the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. What did we do? We read a book that told us it happened that way, and we believe it, and it becomes real. In the millennium, Jesus Christ is alive in a glorified body, and we're in glorified bodies with him, ruling over a planet of people in regular bodies for a thousand years. There's no faith required. You have to do what's right. You have to do what's right. I know that kind of blows people away. But people yet still will be deceived because it talks about false prophets and false teachers that are bringing about some other heresy. And he says, don't fall for those guys. Don't fall for those guys. If you flip over to Matthew chapter 8, just notice. Verse number 12 like I said at the beginning, but the children of the kingdom, 
she'll be cast out into outer, outer darkness. And there should be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there will be some people who will be deceived. There will be some people who do not apply these principles. There will be people, and they will all be children of the kingdom. Because their parents, they made their choice. By the way, God gives you one shot. You understand that? God gives you one shot. We talked this, about this a little bit last week. Uh, some people, I, I have friends and family members, actually, who I've discussed the gospel with who are not believers, not yet anyway. I still pray for them who have heard the story of the church and salvation by grace through faith and this event called the rapture of the church. And, and these are smart people. They, they understand what the Bible says because we've seen it together. And, and basically the response has been, well, I'll just wait around, Jeff, and if you all of a sudden disappear one day, then I figure it's probably true, then I'll go ahead and believe it. But if you don't ever disappear, I think I'll just hold on to what I got. And I'd say, well, okay, I mean, you know, roll the dice. It's your life. But God makes it very clear that you won't get that second chance. Because in the book of Thessalonians, it talks about how God will actually send strong delusion to those who believed a lie, who chose to live their lives in pleasure rather than submitting to Christ. In other words, you can't cross over into some other dispensation and all of a sudden get away with a second chance. But every one of those children has one chance. They, got, they have a chance in their lifetime to decide whether or not with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their mind, they want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Their parents made their decision. They have to make their decision. And there will be those that will say no thanks. Evidenced by the fact that at the end of that thousand years, Satan is loosed for a time, deceives many people, and leads them into a rebellion against God. And ultimately then they are destroyed. Ultimately they are judged and they are cast into a lake of fire. But there will be those who will reject. It's crazy, really. So when I say what is the theme of salvation, I'm not just talking about the theme of salvation is obedience in your deeds in the millennium. Let me just tell you that in any dispensational breakdown at any time in, in human history from Adam all the way till the very end, the theme of salvation is always, and listen, you need to hear me out, it is always obedience. Because if we take Matthew 7.21 that I like to use for evangelism, let me tell you why it applies to us today. Okay, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter in the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Well, for us today in the church age, what is the will of God for you? That you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's will. Have you done that? It's not necessarily that you show up in church or you put money in the offering or you get baptized or you live a good life, you show up in Sunday school and, and all that stuff. I mean, that's all fine. It's not that you live, a golden, live according to the golden, golden rule or try and keep the Ten Commandments. It's not that. I mean, ultimately, if you're going to be saved in this time in which we live, the one chance you got is the thing that you need to do to obey the will of God for you is surrender your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him and thou shalt be saved. That's what the Bible says. That's his will for you. But when you cross into a different dispensation, that's not, that's not the plan. The plan is do what he says. You go back to the Garden of Eden. What was God's plan for them? Do whatever you want, just don't eat from that tree. That was God's plan for them. If they'd have just done that, they'd have been fine, right? But they blew it, right? You can get into any of the other times. You go to the time of Abraham, right? What did God tell Abraham and the people of those times? That's before the law ever showed up with Moses. Well, he just gave them unconditional promises. It says Abraham believed God's un unconditional promises and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham was justified when he believed God's promises, you get into Moses and the law, and there's this whole list of things that man has to do. 
Yes, you're going to have to believe in God also with, that, with your heart, but yet still, if you don't carry out the sacrifices, okay, you can lose favor with God and end up going to hell. You get into the church and it's by grace through faith. God has freely given it to us all. We don't have to do anything. Just surrender to it. It's a free gift. Here, would you like this free gift? And yet people today even say, no thanks, I'm not interested. Blows me away. And in the millennium, it's just the next time where it's like, you don't even have to wonder if it's true with faith. Here we are, bright and shining beings. Everything's perfect and we're in charge. And you're like, yeah, I don't think so. Really? And every time in history, the theme of salvation is always just do whatever God said to do. If you do whatever God said to do, you're good. But if you don't do what God said to do, it's trouble. It's a problem. You obey the law with a right attitude in the millennium. That's what it is. One last couple of verses I want to share with you. 1 John chapter number 3. A little book of 1 John near the end of your Bible. Starting in verse number 1, it says this. Now with all this in mind, just think in your mind all these things we've talked about the future and how it's going to be and how God's going to play it out and how all of history, by the way, this whole idea of dispensational breakdowns and how God deals with man differently over time, at the end of it all, when it's all said and done, at the end of the millennium and we're about to head off into eternity, here's, let me tell you the wisdom of God if I can in just a short sentence. God will be able to look back over history and to be able to say, I have proven to all of you that I have offered every single possible environment for you to respond to me and in every single case there are people who don't now thank god there's people who do but in every single case the garden of eden perfect holiness no sin nature nothing wrong perfect environment everything's perfect they blew it and you come through the situation of the law in the Old Testament. Well, Lord, we don't understand. I just don't even know. It's kind of vague. Just tell me what to do. God says, okay, I'll tell you what to do. Here's a very long list of what you should do. And man's like, yeah, I'm still not going to do that. And then God says, all right, let's just wipe the slate clean. How about the church? I did it. It's free. Just take it. Yeah, no thanks. Really? Every single scenario that you could dream up, aren't we just full of excuses as human beings? It was like, oh, but Lord, if only I had this opportunity. Really? There were multiplied thousands and maybe millions of people who had that very opportunity that still rejected me. No, at the end of time, God will have proven throughout this system that man is wicked and he needs a savior, period. 1 John 3. With all that in mind, behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God, church. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear in his kingdom, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And verse three, and this is it. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure why does it matter that we study this subject because if you can see this if you can grasp this and if you have this hope in you 
It will drive you to live your life holy and right and pure. Live the kingdom life now. You can do it. You really can. So if you're not sure today that God forbid something happened and you did not see the end of this day, that you had some terrible accident, if your physical life were taken from you before this day were over, if you're not sure that you would have a home in heaven, all God asks you to do is Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Surrender to him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Acts 16.31. That's what you should do. Just cast your care upon him. He cares for you. Ask him to forgive you of your sins and he will. He offers to you a free gift. If you would be here and say, I've done that. Thank God I've done that. What is the application for you? Well, if you are sure that you're saved, then let's live like it, y'all. I mean, let's just live like it. Let's live in obedience to what he says and stop being hypocrites and have the right attitude and have the right deeds. And maybe God has put his finger on your heart on some issue that is not right and you know it's not right and it's not been right for a long time and maybe it's sin and maybe it's some problem with another person. Commit today to get it right. Purify yourself if you have this hope that is in you. That's what we need to do. Let's put our Bibles away. Let's stand up. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.